show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago, and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me singing this song, show me the way to go home. Hello. And welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are we serving today? Hi, I've got a beer. Woo! It's, um, it's called Apocalyptic Thunder Juice. Oh my word. Um, it's more of a visual kind of cue to what I want to talk about, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Because... I don't know if you want to try and describe that can. Uh, I can. Okay, so there's there's a totem. There's fire. Um, I'm getting a lot of sort of Central American kind of vibes. There's lightning. There's a there's a volcano spewing magma. There's possibly spaceship alien type things going on. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Yep. Um, and I'm going to be talking about some of the stuff that's kind of depicted in this can today. Um, that region but um yeah we're going to be talking about delirium hey stop playing with my delirium exactly i've been singing the wrong song all day (laughs) i've been singing (laughs) this is insane (laughs) so i've been on lady hawk and you've been on peter andre (laughs) yes I yep, think that sounds, says sounds a about lot right. about us. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds absolutely predictable. <laughs> um, well, look, I could not do an episode on delirium without going full delirium tremens. So mm, that is what I'm about to partake in. I'm just going to say good luck, future Tim, for getting to the end of this episode. So we'll see how it goes. How strong? Are you going to tell us how strong mm. now? Or are you going to come to I'm going to. I'm going to talk about it properly in a little while a short while so mm. i will i'll okay. leave it for them um, when you're slurring when i'm slurring exactly when i can barely get the words out uh let's start then with delirium so the word delirium itself is derived from the latin deliro delirare um it means so delirio means to go out of the furrow a furrow being the the trench that you make when you plow something <laughs> Yep, thought that I was just, early doors. Yep, thought I'd pause for that one. <laughs> um, so already, uh, delirium has this this metaphorical dimension that lean that links it to agriculture, and you do get that as quite a consistent thing. So yeah, its, it's origin is out of out of the trench. So you've you've kind of you've gone off course. You've gone overboard out somewhere. Um, it was first used by Celsus in the first century CE in his medical writings that described mental disorders, uh, both as a symptom and also as a syndrome that would happen following head trauma or fever. So Celsus himself was actually not a physician. Um, he uh, was, or for want of a better word, like an encyclopedist (laughs) that's not a very nice word is it he compiled encyclopedias Mm. encyclopedias um and he made the hippocratic corpus so if you remember hippocrates from he who inspired those mold wine bags (laughs) um and Mm -hmm. not just did that father of medicine 
Uh, so he compiled the Hippocratic Corpus, he translated it into Latin and then integrated it with a later work called uh, De Medicina, where he also identified it as a sign of approaching death. Hippocrates himself actually never used the word delirium, which we should know because it's Latin, <laughs> and he uh, spoke and wrote in Greek. But instead, Hippocrates described delirium in other terms like um, lethargus, so like lethargy, tiredness, and also phrenitis. Uh, phren means heart mind, like the heart of the mind. Um, so lethargus mm. kind of refer- refers to the dulling of the senses and... Um, if you've got kind of like slowness in your movement and then phrenitis refers to sleep disturbances and the acute onset of cognitive and behavioral disturbances which are generally found when you've got a fever so all those terms uh, you know phrenitis uh, lethargus frenzy actually frenzy spelled p-h-r-e-n-s-y um uh, was used in that context as well and now we spell it f-r-e-n-z-y because that's how it sounds but it's it's got the same root um so mm. frenzy kind of still refers to the the heart mind they were they were used in various kind of contexts for a long time because it's not like there's kind of a really there's something you can pinpoint about something like delirium no it's a really broad category and so they were using the words interchangeably Um, And it wasn't really until the end of the 19th century that those terms start to um, disappear and people start to try and define it a bit more specifically. So what is delirium now? (laughs) Still still an ongoing thing, actually. The the definition I've got, I noticed, has the word consciousness in it. But I'm aware that only a few years ago they took the word consciousness out of uh, this diagnosis. But that's a whole other conversation we don't need to go into. Anyway... I'm not going to go into the nature of consciousness today. Uh, so a diagnosis <laughs> of delirium. You. I know. Thank you. Everyone is welcome. Um, a diagnosis <laughs> of delirium is uh, typically based on observations and, and behaviours of cognition because there aren't actually any diagnostic tests you can take. Um, but what you would be looking for is acute onset and fluctuating course. So that means it comes on rapidly and it changes. Um, inattention or distraction disorganized thinking or an altered level of consciousness which might include hallucinations or delusions and so that's quite broad (laughs) really as a term Um, and it can result from infections drugs dehydration kidney failure liver failure um, head trauma brain tumors or lack of sleep but it's distinct from something like dementia because it's reversible So the idea is it's something that's come on rapidly, it can be treated, it's reversible. Dementia is obviously a permanent state, but you can get delirium in dementia, but actually it's often not diagnosed because people mistake kind of the longer symptoms of dementia um, for delirium. But actually you should be paying attention to delirium because it is treatable. So there you go. Um, I saw you raise your eyebrows a bit when I said lack of sleep. Um, Was that one a surprise? Uh, yeah, because I think I'm pretty much an insomniac. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was just wondering. Um... Well, it's it's funny because as far as I can remember, that's the only time I have had some kind of delirium when I've hallucinated was because I stayed awake for pretty much four days <laughs> at the Edinburgh Fringe right. Festival. <laughs> I, I think um... there might have been alcohol involved as well. 
Do you know, not that much. Not Here's the thing, not that much. Because, look, you, you actually can um, hallucinate a bit from... You can get um, alcohol, alcoholic hallucinosis, which is not full delirium, but it's when you have kind of got enough toxicity through alcohol that you can hallucinate. Um, no, 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 this occasion was... Um, I'd, I'd gone up to Edinburgh Fringe and I'd gone up on a on a mega bus <laughs> from London because it was one pound fifty. But you don't really get much sleep on a mega bus from London to Edinburgh. And then when I got there, it was you know like see some shows, do some partying. Nothing ever closes Edinburgh Fringe. And I went to a show. I I had a tradition every year of going to a very long show that started as a twenty four hour show that um, a comedian called Mark Watson did, and. The final year I went up, it was 36 hours long. And mm-hmm. we'd been participating sort of every year. So I went up and did that. Um, left sort of, you know, you, you go and have a drink afterwards. I maybe saw another show. And then I got another Megabus back home from Edinburgh to London. And then I had to go more or less straight away to do a gig in the evening. And I remember going on stage and everything expanding and moving. And there were fish like swimming through the air. And um, it was all just, you know, it was an interesting experience, but it wasn't, it wasn't because I was drunk or anything like that, because I don't think I'd have, I'd have just fallen asleep if I'd, if I'd Mm -hmm. gotten drunk. It was simply that I just hadn't been to sleep for a few days because I'd gotten carried away with uh, comedy. That's the only time I think I had it. I think, I think some people are more susceptible to it um, with regards to like lack of sleep, but also the effects of like caffeine and things that are supposed to help you stay awake as well because I've never been one to really feel or notice the effects of caffeine um no that's that's a very different thing though like the brain needs sleep or it can't clean itself you know it has to for Mm. you know as a as a metaphor essentially that's what happens you go you sort of lose your way mentally and physically very quickly if you don't get sleep for a few days Mm. um but I want to move on with the delirium because there is a version that speaks very specifically to drinking, to excess, which is delirium tremens. And delirium tremens is a rapid onset of confusion, usually caused by withdrawal from alcohol. So not just the excess of it, but the withdrawal from having been an alcoholic. So when it occurs, it's often three days into the withdrawal symptoms and it lasts for two or three days itself. And the physical effects might include shaking and shivering, which is like where the the tremendous tremor comes from. Um, Shaking, shivering, irregular heart rates, sweating. Um, So a couple of days of that maybe doesn't sound too bad, but actually the high temperature, the fever that comes with it, and it can cause seizures, might result in death. Um, you also get common symptoms that include very intense perceptual disturbance, so hallucinations, um, such mm-hmm. as visions of insects and snakes and rats. Um, these might be related to the to the environment, so your brain is looking at patterns on the wallpaper or movement in the peripheral vision and misinterpreting them. Um, but you also get tactile hallucinations, so like feeling mm-hmm. something crawling over your body which um, is known as formication, in case you want to know. That is the phenomenon. Uh, Formica, I think, is like Latin for ant or something. Um, Delirium tremens usually includes um, extremely intense feelings of impending doom as well. Um, 
how you would distinguish that from anyone else's current feeling of impending doom, I don't know. But um, <laughs> that, that is <laughs> that's part of the diagnosis. So it typically occurs in people with high intake of alcohol for more than a month. Uh, so this isn't just your average drinker having a weekend off. Um, <laughs> it's But alcohol is actually, if you are, if you become dependent on it, it's one of the most dangerous drugs to withdraw from. So, okay, yeah. for example, if you withdraw from other stimulants like cocaine, they actually don't have major medical complications. Um, I'm not recommending you go and do that instead. I don't, I'm not sure we could, you know, provide lots of different kind of tasty varieties of cocaine for you to sample the podcast. Um, but it's just kind of like as a comparison of how serious the withdrawal is. You can treat it with quite easily available stuff. So benz- uh, benzodiazepines, so like diazepam, um, you can get that and, and you would administer that until the person starts to sleep um, lightly. Not obviously, <laughs> don't knock them out. Um <laughs> And you can use antipsychotics as well. And thiamine is highly recommended. So there's a big deficiency of that that B vitamin in withdrawal. The mortality rate is possibly higher than you might think uh, for this. So mm-hmm. without treatment of any kind, mortality rate for alcohol withdrawal is between 15 and 40%. Which I think is pretty yeah. shocking, especially considering how many people I imagine wouldn't go and get it treated. Um, mm-hmm. And even for those who do get it treated, death occurs in about 1% to 4% of cases. About half of people with alcoholism develop withdrawal symptoms upon reducing their use. And of those, 3 to 5% will develop uh, delirium tremens or have seizures. Isn't that all a lot it's... higher than you would think? Um, I don't know, because I'm having a bit of like a weird kind of mind-blown moment because... This is weird. In hindsight, looking back on us, when I was about 15 or 16, I went to visit somebody in hospital and um, everything that you've just described, all those symptoms, all those things, that was exactly what I witnessed um, this person going through. And yeah, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of... They, they were in hospital, thankfully, so they were in the right place. But um, yeah, it was alcohol withdrawal. And yeah, the... Everything that you've just said, the impending sense of doom, the hallucinations, everything. It's like, holy mm-hmm. crap, yeah, I've seen I've seen this happen uh, face-to-face, and it's, uh, yeah. it's wild. It's, yeah. it's... They were, I remember they were, um, they were hallucinating. They said they could see monkeys running around the ward, and they were getting yep. really, really freaked out about these monkeys um, just constantly. And every time I went to visit them over those days, it was just a constant worry of theirs that <laughs> these monkeys were causing havoc around the ward and nobody was doing about anything about mm-hmm. it and it was given that they were getting really distressed about it and yeah that's that's Easy. exactly it in fact i've got a reference to two monkeys um yeah. <laughs> yeah um but i mean that's why you know you shouldn't go cold turkey with something like this you know the idea mm. that you should give alcohol to someone with delirium tremens is a bit controversial because you know but it, either way it needs to be treated um the, the name delirium tremens first gets used in um, 1813 specifically, but the symptoms were kind of well described long before that from the 1700s. comes under various nicknames, which I think are actually quite funny, even though this condition's serious. So it was referred to as the shakes, the upizootics, barrel fever, blue horrors, bottle ache, bats, drunken horrors, gallon distemper, quart mania, heebie-jeebies, 
pink spiders and riding the ghost train. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But the most famous one is pink elephants. Mm-hmm. So delirium tremens is used a lot in literature. There are many, many people who have characters who were suffering from it. And, you know, obviously it was observed quite a lot in those circles, I should think. Um, in the 19th century, writers variously used animals from rats to monkeys, a reference, uh, giraffes, mm-hmm. hippopotamuses and elephants or combinations thereof. And they um, added colours as well. Blue, red, green, pink all of those so they were used in various permutations but from the early 20th century pink elephants is the one that becomes the dominant metaphor although actually snakes do persist into the 1920s i was gonna say into the 1920s because um there are characters who would say that there was a snake in their boots and then i was like toy story there's a snake (laughs) in my boots so apparently woody has delirium tremens (laughs) who knew oh gosh oh woody (laughs) yeah um there's an alcoholic character in Jack London's 1913 novel, uh, John Barleycorn, um, who hallucinates. I've actually got a, I was going to say a clip, an extract. I'm not going to play a clip. <laughs> play a clip from this book. Um, okay, here we go. There are, broadly speaking, two types of drinkers. There is the man whom we all know, stupid and imaginative, whose brain is bitten numbly by numb maggots, who walks generously with widespread tentative legs, falls frequently in the gutter, and he sees in the extremity of his ecstasy blue mice and pink elephants. He is the type that gives rise to the jokes in the funny papers. So that was 1913, where they call out specific pink elephants, and it seems to be the one that's stuck thereafter. Um, In fact, there's a very famous um, reference, which is the first Superman comic. In 1938, Lois Lane says that she's just seen Superman and someone says, now you're seeing pink elephants. Mm. Yeah, well, that's quite a cool one. And then another very famous one three years later, um, the 1941 Disney film Dumbo. So after taking a drink of water from a oh, bucket, cool. yeah, that's been spiked with champagne, Dumbo and the mouse, Timothy, begin to hallucinate <laughs> singing and dancing elephants in the, the segment that's known as Pink Elephants on Parade. Um, now, I have to tell you, I had recurring nightmares of pink elephants dancing when I was young, when I was a child. <laughs> I used to dream it frequently. Now, did I have delirium tremens <laughs> as, as a six and seven-year-old? <laughs> or was it because... I distinctly remember in in primary school, so I would have been like five or six, that um, they made us watch Dumbo um, a lot. But I remember one specific occasion, we'd, we'd been out, like it was in the afternoon, we'd been out for lunch first and I was wearing a coat and my zip got stuck. Do you remember like when you had a sort of a broken zip and you're like, I can't get out of this thing. Yeah. And I was zipped this up in this now. warm coat <laughs> and... <laughs> The teachers were like, oh, just keep it on and sit and watch the video. And I was in this small hot room with lots of other children (laughs) watching someone hallucinate pink elephants, developing a fever as we speak. And I think that traumatized me from pink (laughs) elephants. And that's why I had recurring nightmares about it. Anyway, either that or I had delirium tremens. You'd be the judge. Yeah, it was that or the booze. Yeah, it was that or the booze. Um, Pink elephants actually do exist in nature, by the way. Um, they're rare, but they're, they're albino elephants, but they can appear pink 
um, as well as pure white. Cute. I want to see one. Mm. Who doesn't want a pink elephant? Well, I don't know how I'd react, actually, this trauma. Um, also, <laughs> I thought this was funny. Uh, you know Sarah Palin? Not personally, but I know of <laughs> Oh, I thought you were Bezzies. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how do you describe her? Monstrous American politician Sarah Palin. Um, she des- In 2008, she described the Republican women as pink elephants. Because, you know, the elephant is the symbol of the Republican Party. And because she's so progressive, she was like, women, pink. Um, but I thought that was funny, that the symbol of alcohol withdrawal. <laughs> she's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah. Do you think she checked? Or do you think she realised afterwards? And then went, oh, I don't think that. she realises to this day. Um, <laughs> I'm not convinced she knows what an elephant is, to be honest. <laughs> so, some kind of bear. I know she doesn't sound like that. <laughs> She's from Alaska, not Texas. <laughs> but it came out and I stick by it. <laughs> uh, okay, pink elephants, why are we talking about this? So, um, you, Delirium Tremens, as I, as I'm going to, as I am drinking now, and as I will talk about, comes from the Heuger Brewery, and it, which was founded in 1906 by Leon Heuger in the city of Mella in East Flanders in Belgium. Um, they've been brewing on that site for a lot longer, actually, since 1654, but um, this is when the brewery gets founded. Um, the beers created at Heuger included a series of beers under the Delirium tag, which featured pink elephants on the label. The best known of these is Delirium Tremens, which is this delicious thing, a blonde Belgian ale at, to answer the question you asked 20 minutes ago, 8.5%. Um, ABV. So, uh, nice. take it easy. Um, you hear it called a, a triple style. Um, it's actually not known exactly where the term triple comes from. I mean, you presume it just means triple the amount of something. I always had. Um, it might be referring to strength, um, as typically, you know, they might have increased from 3% to 6%, then 9% on average. There are some stories that monks just used to mark barrels with an X. And so if it was like normal strength, it'd be one X and then two X's and then three X's. So maybe that's where the mm-hmm. kind of triple comes from. And it wasn't a specific strength they were they were measuring. But actually, we don't really know. There's no record of, of where it comes from. Um, it's about triple T-R-I-P-E-L, not L-E. Because obviously we get triple yeah. varieties of beers, triple hops uh, type beer, which is an indication of how much hops they've put in. But we obviously know that comes directly from triple the amount, but we're not quite sure with the ER version. Um, Delirium Trends, how how old do you think it is? When do you think it was first released? <sighs> I'm going to say kind of around the 1920s. Mm-hmm. I was with you on this. I thought... Oh, it's not going to be long after they, they've opened it. It feels like quite an old label to me. It was actually launched on Boxing Day in 1988. Ooh, yeah, is modern. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised by how modern it was. It feels a lot older. Um, yeah. But there you go. They, they also have um, Deliria, which they launched in 2013, which was brewed by a group of female brewers. And they do that once a year for International Women's Day. They brew a new variety. Um, both of the beers, Tremens and Deliria, have won lots of awards for a long time. It's a very highly regarded beer. 
in 2019, they also released Delirium Black ranges, which is either Nocturne or their Christmas version, Delirium Noel. And those are aged for nine months in bourbon barrels, and they go up to just under 12%. Um, Delirium Tremens, their main one I'm having, contains just pale malts, uh, Styrian Golding and Sars Hops. What they say gives it, it its edge, like its distinct flavour, is that they use three different types of yeast. Um, obviously, it's got water in it as well, but that's that's what they concentrate on, is that they've got three yeasts. And then they also have um, secondary fermentation in the bottle as well. Delirium Tremens accounts for about a third of the brewery's production. And traditionally, it comes in a ceramic bottle, although you don't tend to find it that much in this country, um, which, which the bottle's in the style of... Um, German cologne pottery, and it features not yeah, just I the think pink elephant. Yeah, I think that's elephants. why. That's why I thought it was older than it is because yes. it's that ceramic bottle to me feels old. Yes, well, I'm going to tell you why that is uh, mm. in a moment. So um, the bottle features not just the pink elephant that it's that it's known for. It also has um, uh, further representations of intoxication <laughs> stages of it. Let's say so it goes on from <laughs> the pink elephant to the crocodile, and on the bottle it looks like he's snowboarding. Um, and and a dragon as well, which I guess is like if you've hit that, you're probably doomed. Um, so according to like their their origin stories, and I have to say I believe all their origin stories. I don't think this is an example of marketing bullshit. Um, when they were talking about giving it this um, uh, this new name because it hadn't hadn't been uh, named properly, they were drinking with their tax people. <laughs> <laughs> they're belgian tax collectors and he was like oh this is this is pretty strong uh, if i have any more of this i might get delirium tremens and apparently they just thought that's a good name we'll have that <laughs> that'll do yeah because <laughs> you do have to wonder like if i mean i get it in the 80s you think now like would you name a drink after such <laughs> a terrible fatal such condition a of, yeah, exactly, yeah yeah but um it worked for them it worked the the ceramic bottles they say because they were quite a sort of a small brewery at the time before this particular drink exploded in popularity um they say that they were just leftover bottles from a previous unfulfilled order like someone cancelled some sort of specific order and they had these leftover dusty ceramic bottles in the corner in a couple of bags and they poured it into there and then shipped it off locally and people really liked it. So it was just a chance thing that took off. There wasn't a lot of thought behind it, apparently, which is why I believe it. Um, and then as for the, the design, the Pink Elephant logo, they got an art student uh, to do it in exchange for two cases of Delirium Tremens beer. <laughs> They're like, we'll give you some beer if you design our label. Apparently he took inspiration directly from Dumbo. Um, and also from Hitchcock's The Birds. I've been looking at the label and like the two side by side. I don't entirely get The Birds reference. Um, maybe he just didn't want to seem like he was just ripping off Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> just chuck another film in there. Yeah, that's, that's my personal theory. He was like, oh, Disney might sue us. Let's just say it was a range of things. Um, yeah, they they do have other like they do have other brands as well though because they're the Hoiger Brewery as opposed to the Delirium Brewery, so they have got other things as well. They're just not as well known, but um, in association with Delirium, you might go for their beer Paranoia, uh, which is um, a hazy blonde beer, and the image on that is a blue with yellow dots hippo. <laughs> 
to kind of keep things to a theme. Yeah, they've got an interesting theme, haven't they? <laughs> yeah, they're not all like that. They've got some very normal sounding beers as well, but I just picked that one out because it, it seems so closely associated. <laughs> Choices. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that's me for a while. I'm going to uh, enjoy my delirium. You're going to be shit-faced by the time it's your turn to chat again. So sure. sure. <laughs> uh, I'm going to serve some tea, if that's all right. That was a few weeks ago, mate. You're a bit late to I know. the game. I did, I did think, oh, I could have talked about this on the tea episode, but <laughs> it, it's more relevant to this. Okay. Um, so it's ayahuasca tea, mm. which is a herbal drink made with plants that grow in the Amazon jungle. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you can sense where this is going. It's tea that sends you fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's used in healing ceremonies for, well, it's been used for centuries, actually. Um, it's said to have spiritual and therapeutic benefits, uh, but it also, on the side, causes hallucinations. Um, although it's got a bit of a, it's na- a name for itself for being that batshit crazy tea it has attracted the attention of western medicine because there have been some very small studies at the moment so it's about, been about 100 years that the western medicine have been looking into it so it's relatively new and there have been some very small studies to see that it is showing signs of being effective with regards to treating depression they are seeing some uh, some green boxes being ticked when people try it, but also lots of side effects, which I'll come to. But uh, let's talk about the consumption of it first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's popular with people seeking a shaman experience. Um, so obviously it's grown in the Amazon jungle. So it's uh, South America is where people tend to go to enjoy it. Uh, people pay a lot of money in their droves to go to retreats and experience the I quote, intense psychedelic delights. Um, So it's illegal in the US. uh, So yeah, hence why it's quite expensive to go off to this retreat and try it. Um, And as I mentioned, there's not been much study into it. It has a lot of side effects. And unfortunately, it has also been the cause of some deaths of these tourists that are going to try the ayahuasca tea. Uh, I'll get into all that. Let's just talk about the fun stuff. Sure. You know, the hallucinating. <laughs> uh, so yeah, to make the tea, uh, it's a flowering vine that grows in the Amazon jungle. Um, you pound the stems of this flowering vine. That can then be used alone to create the ayahuasca tea, or it can also be added to the leaves of other plants that have other kind of stimulants and crazy effects. Um, so it has to be prepped by somebody who's trained in making the ayahuasca tea in a traditional way. And they are named the ayahuascuero. So the uh, ayahuascuero will pre- prepare the tea in a shaman hut. And those partaking will lie on grass mats or mattresses whilst riding up the high. It could be quite a long time that this high, it could be hours and hours and as I'm going to get into, there's a lot of side effects as well. So it's best that they just lie down and just just let it happen. <laughs> um, so it's said that the tea, as well as causing hallucinations, it can give you a great mental awakening. Lots of people say that it gives them a, a feeling that there's like a higher power or a presence around them. Some people feel like they can travel, time travel with it. Um, 
So one guy, so a, a writer, William Burroughs, wrote, mm. um, at first I thought I was poisoned, but it actually felt like I was turning half man, half woman. Uh, but he had a lovely time and he praised the tea for its ability to facilitate space-time travel so yeah he had a great time on it but uh, other people not so much I the mean, reason you, why I was just going to ask have you, have you have you read any um, William Burroughs or like seen any of the films I've not no it, ex- but, um... it explains a lot when you do see them <laughs> Um, okay. Na- Naked Lunch in particular is mm-hmm. something else. I really love it. I because I think it's funny. But um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Just a recommendation. If you haven't read it or seen the film Naked Lunch, do that. <laughs> Naked Lunch. Yeah. It's going on the spreadsheet. It's by the way. There's a <laughs> there's a well-known bit in The Simpsons where. Um, where like Bart and his friends decide that they're gonna sneak into an R-rated movie, um, so they they choose Naked Lunch because obviously they think it's <laughs> gonna, <laughs> gonna be like you know boobs out and stuff. And in reality, it's like a mind-altering nonsense trip, and you're just kind of like, what is going on? And they they come out of the film, they come out of the cinema, and they just go, I can think of two things wrong with that title. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's no naked. There's no lunch. <laughs> damn yeah just a massive trip i think i think you'll really like the film please do go and watch it i'm gonna write it down actually yeah it's your homework for next episode <laughs> hit pause so i'm just gonna write down yeah. the naked lunch naked lunch <laughs> the naked lunch it's officially written down so i'm gonna watch it um so back to the tea yeah the reason why it's uh, so deadly uh, it contains DMT, which is a psychedelic compound that causes intense hallucinations. Um, so as I mentioned, there have been some small pilot studies um, since it has attracted the attention of Western medicine. So these studies haven't been looking at ayahuasca tea per se. It's more the DMT, the mm-hmm. compound. Um, so yeah, they've just been trying to test to see whether or not um, it can help with depression or other stuff. So... One of the larger, so as I mentioned, the pilot studies, it's been around like 15, 16, 17 people. Every time I was trying to find these studies, it was always like a really small amount of people. But there was one um, where in 1990, um, 60 subjects were injected with uh, DMT. They had a lot of sessions. I think I read something around 400 sessions. So it was a a long-term study. Um... And of these 60 subjects, most of them sensed the presence of a powerful being or a godlike presence. They all definitely felt like that. Um, 25 of them had really intense um, hallucinations where they saw alien robots, insects, reptiles. Um, but the, it started to become an issue because they could not be told that they weren't hallucinations. They were adamant that it was real and it was right. getting quite detrimental to their health um so yeah they they stopped that research (laughs) yeah Um, understandable can you imagine being paid um, just to like trip balls for two years but there's a lot of other it would be like working at microsoft again (laughs) 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 um 
But the doctor who was uh, doing this pilot did write a book on his findings. It's called DMT, The Spirit Molecule. So that might be one worth reading. Mm-hmm. Be interested to see what did happen over those couple of years. Yeah, that feels like it would make uh, a good film. Oh, God. Well, I don't know, actually, because I've read into the physical, the other kind of side effects. Mm-hmm. So as well as hallucination, these are quite common side effects as well. Vomiting, diarrhea, elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate. This one I find really weird. Higher rectal temperature. Mm. Like, who's measuring that? I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the dilation of pupils. Um and it was mentioned in pretty much the majority of those pilot studies that almost half of the uh, people trialling it were getting the majority of these physical effects, vomiting being the main one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did some delving into just trying to see if I could find any stories or info for anyone that had been, not obviously not on these pilots, but you know the tourists i mentioned like lots of people pay thousands of pounds to go to these tourist kind of retreats and and indulge in it uh and i i found a blog from some chap who just calls himself wedge um (laughs) (laughs) he uh he's got an extensive blog about his kind of i guess experience in in hallucinogenics it's not just ayahuasca tea he seems to be mad up for it Mm -hmm. and this was just one of his many many escapades um it's quite interesting because he obviously takes it very seriously he's not just a kind of throw a bit of money of it just because i want to get high in Mm -hmm. on the tits it's more of a i need this spiritual experience he really believed in it and it's quite interesting that he um refers to these physical effects especially the vomiting as purging mm-hmm. um it, it, he sees it as helpful not a side effect it's, it's part of the process uh so i'm just going to read from that point to you <laughs> um a few moments later i began to feel grandmother taking hold of me again i considered running to the bathroom to purge but instead i decided it was important that i purge in the audience of the group as many others had My intuition was telling me that an important step for me was to release my protective ego, to lose my fear of being myself around others. Purging is an intense personal experience, and to share it with a group, I felt, would be a breakthrough in losing my fear of judgement. As I felt the purge coming, I grabbed a bucket and leaned over it. Then it came. A purge of such intensity, I felt like I nearly went into shock. But it did not end after several sessions of vomiting. Grandmother had me firmly in her loving arms, stripping my ego to its core, showing me just how much of myself I needed to let go. I don't know how much time passed, as time has no meaning during this kind of journey, but I was in my purge state for a very long time. My body became contorted, wrapped in on itself, as vomit, snot, tears and drool exited my body. Diarrhea followed the later evening. I was no longer myself. I was a child in my grandmother's arms, suffering her love with agonising humility. As the purge deepened, I began to shiver violently and I could barely sense someone's hand on my back. At one point, I overheard somebody ask David, is Wedge going to be okay? To which David replied, look at him, Wedge is having the best moment right now. I mean, it's, so, yeah. it, it sounds like Beaujolais Day. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like. You've had too much and you just need to chill out, Wedge. <laughs> chill out, Wedge. Do you know what I find deeply ironic about um, 
all of like <laughs> the descriptions of these experiences is they always say like it stripped away my ego uh, uh, you know and all this sort of stuff but all they ever do is talk about themselves <laughs> they're not like i took this experience and i realized there were people suffering in the world and i should go and do something about that it's always like yeah it stripped away my ego and so let me tell you more about what i did um <laughs> and you're like no one cares literally no one cares but it's also just obviously he's had somebody's had too many drugs and has just thrown up until they've snotted all over themselves. Too many drugs. Look, I I genuinely I don't want to disparage the work that is being done into looking how it treats like mental illnesses and depression and stuff because I know like there is so much anecdotal stuff about um you know like how how helpful it is, but doesn't mean I necessarily want to hear your personal take on it. (laughs) Have you watched (laughs) Simon Amstel talks about his experience a lot? Have you have you seen? Oh, I, actually, I had a recommendation. I was listening to a different podcast and, yeah, it came on as an advert where he was talking about his uh, his experience. I can't mm. remember what the name of the podcast was. There's, he, he's got, like, um, Netflix specials about it, but he talks about he was having sort of existential crisis and went over and it sorted him out. So there you go. That's another another perspective on it, but from a comedian who will probably be a bit more sort of self aware about sounding, <laughs> you know, not too much like Wedge. <laughs> yeah, you throw up until you shit yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of throwing up until you shit yourself, mm-hmm. uh, can we talk mm-hmm. about Four Logo now? <laughs> I mean, yes, I guess maybe. I don't know. I don't want to say yes, but I feel like you're gonna. <laughs> Uh, so, what, so what do you know about Four Loco? I don't know anything so, about it. Oh, okay. So Four Loco. I mean, I know has... that loco. Lo, sorry, I know that loco means you know crazy in Spanish. I think, and four means four. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, off <we're> there. <laughs> um, so Four Loco's kind of gained a bit of a cult status in kind of. American colleges and frat parties as just like the drink will get you messed up. It's it's affectionately called blackout in a can. Mm. Um. So, but it's not quite what it used to be. It's 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 not as crazy as it used to be. So I'm going to rewind back to 2005 and talk about it from when it was born, and we'll come right up to modern day. Mm-hmm. You're going to re-e-wind. So, will the crowd say by Rewind. We've had Craig David and Peter Andre now. Yeah. We're really like in a place, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yes, 2005. Three guys who were described as frat bro alumni. Something I would never want to take the kind of name on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, these three chaps, Jeff Wright, Jason Freeman and Christopher Hunter... They decided that the world needed a really heavily caffeinated, really high ABV alcoholic beverage. That's what the world was missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they set out to make just that. They made a cherry flavoured vodka-esque malt beverage, which they called Four. Uh, four because it contained caffeine, taurine, guarana and wormwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 6% ABV, and it was an absolute flop. It just didn't do well at all. Nobody liked it, didn't taste too good, didn't do what it said on the tin, essentially. Um, 
so they tried again. Their second iteration in 2008. Uh, that was the one that gained the notoriety and also the name Loco. So it became Full Loco. Um, interestingly, they cut the Wormwood out. So when I first read this and saw that there was Wormwood in it, obviously Wormwood is, you know, one of the um, ingredients in absinthe. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's why. But yeah, surprisingly, they cut that out in the second iteration. Um, but they doubled the alcohol. So it went up to 12 ABV, so it's very strong. And they'd sell these in cans, kind of like tall cans, like the energy drinks, like mm-hmm. not Red Bull, like the monster yeah. ones, you know, the big cans. So they were selling these big, big cans of 12%, uh, essentially like a energy drink, alcohol pop type thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it just, it went crazy. They said they couldn't make it fast enough. People were just loving it. Um, it had a, as much impact as roughly four beers and as much caffeine as 1.5 cups of coffee. Uh, so, yeah, it was very, very sweet, though. They, they, they managed to, although it was very heavily alcoholic, it was very, very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the danger was caffeine, it was masking the effects of the booze. So people mm-hmm. were smashing back these like they were energy drinks, but also forgetting that they were 12%. <laughs> so getting pretty drunk, but they were just flying off the shelves. Revenue um, doubled from $45 million in 2009 to $100 million in 2010. Uh, but that was quickly followed by some pretty nasty stories of hallucinations, um, accidental nude break-ins. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, so so lots of like really nasty stories. If you just kind of Google the word for local, you don't need, need to add anything else to it. Just Google for local and you'll find mm-hmm. some crazy stories online. Uh, but it just completely took hold of like the whole frat party kind of scenario there was a whole genre of four local rap music from the summer of 2010 um if you go on youtube you can probably still find it um but yeah the problems kept coming because people were just getting so drunk on the stuff um colleges started banning it uh lawsuits started to appear from families who felt like their kids at college were dying from four local they were being linked to four local a lot um, so in 2010, a warning letter was sent to the makers asking them to take swift and appropriate steps to protect consumers. Um, at first, they kind of pushed back and were like, no, no, no. But there were a lot of legal lawsuits and eventually it was banned. Um, so certain states started banning it. Um, the, on a side note, there was a great... Um, <laughs> It was a great story about a New York State assemblyman called Felix Ortiz, who was really pushing the ban. And I think he was the one who finally got the legalization through where it was, you know, they weren't allowed to sell it as it was. Um, But somebody said to him, like, well, if it's that bad, prove it. (laughs) And he did. He was like, "Okay, fine. And so I don't know if it was on live TV, but it was public enough for everyone to like still remember it and laugh about it but he drank two cans of four loco in relatively quick succession uh in the presence of some doctors um but his blood pressure spiked wildly and he was violently throwing up (laughs) my favorite part he says i needed at least three pieces of pizza to bring me back again (laughs) (laughs) 
All potentially harmful drinks should be measured by how much pizza do I need to eat afterwards. <laughs> that should be an official unit. <laughs> um, so yeah, in 2010, it was, uh, they, they were told like, you, you can't keep producing it in its current state because people are just getting far too drunk, far too quick on it. Um, so they agreed, um, hesitantly, they, uh, said, fine, we'll remove the caffeine and the other stimulants. Um, and that was that. And people actually held a vigil for Four Loco. Like, that's how much of a cold So there were vigils for Four Loco all across the States. Um, it also meant that the company had $30 million uh, worth of unsellable stock in their warehouse. Don't know what happened to that, but there Staff was obviously party. a lot. Oh, that's, blatantly. That's what happened to that, Staff Barty. Blatantly. Um, but obviously there was still a lot of Four Loco out on the shelves and in shops. So there was a grace period where distributors were given a month to shift the caffeinated wild Four Loco. Uh, so obviously people started a stockpile. Uh, cases were appearing on eBay for crazy money. Um, but there was one bar in New York, of all places, um, that started doing all you can drink Four Loco happy hours. Which, um, yeah, I won't go into that. <laughs> I mean, um, can you imagine but... how much the bar had to shell out in terms of like paying for security and cleaners? Oh, it can't be worth it, Gross. surely. <laughs> Absolutely not. But yeah, for local now, it's still on the shelves. It's still 12%, but there's no caffeine and wormwood and taurine and other stuff in it. It's mm-hmm. just a very, very, very strong, disgusting Arcapop, essentially. Yeah. Um, Shall we put it on the spreadsheet? The one... <laughs> oh yeah, put it on the spreadsheet. Let's put it on the spreadsheet. But uh, one of one of the favourite things I found about it was when Biden was uh, sworn into office, and his first tweet was like, "Okay, let's get started, America. What can we do?" So many people were just like, "Bring back Four Local." <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's yet to do it. Uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> I think four loco might might end him at this point, so maybe not a good idea. Yeah. Mm, thanks. So yeah, that's four loco. Thanks. I look forward to uh, trying that one day. Can you can you even get it in this country? Um, I don't think you can because I have lots of friends. Who, even we've got better taste. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think you can because obviously four loco was in its prime with all its crazy stimulants when I was in university mm-hmm. and there were a lot of students that came over to my university for a year from the States mm-hmm. and they always used to bang on about Four Loco and how crazy it was mm-hmm. um, and they used to say it was a shame you couldn't get it here. To be honest I don't think it is a shame because we don't need encouraging. No we don't, we really don't. <laughs> so I went this week to the British Museum and saw their exhibit on Peru, which was really great. And there were loads and loads of like drinking vessels and paraphernalia and stories in there. Enough really to do a whole episode on Peru. So I won't talk about it all, but I thought for this episode, I should just throw in the mention of the psychedelic beer (laughs) that they have. Um, (laughs) So they, they have, we most famously know the Incas from Peru, but actually they were only around for about 120 years. There was a longer empire in Peru called the Wari Empire, 
um, which mostly spanned across the, the highlands of modern-day Peru, and they were about 600 to 1,000 CE. Um, and the theory is that they prospered so well for so long because they were really good at forming political allegiances. They were good at making friends, basically. And um, one of the tools that we know they had um, uh, to do that was an hallucinogenic beverage. <laughs> so they they made a a drink that was like beer from the the, the droops or the, the fruit, if you will, of uh, mole trees. And mole trees produce um, essentially like Peruvian peppercorn, pink peppercorns. And they would make a beer out of that, which is a very pretty colour, and then combine it with psychotropic seeds from uh, vilca, so vilca seeds. And this was kind of probably the main thing that they would use to have smaller gatherings, not like great big parties, but smaller feasts that help build their social relationships and sort of reinforce their social positions. So Vilca seeds are still used, though not very often, as an hallucinogen in South America. And it, it does promote that sort of intense out-of-body experience that's very similar to ayahuasca. Um, it's, it's been described as a powerful drug that, when it's inhaled, uh, quickly leads to blackout, <laughs> to vomiting, to visions. In other words, that's not a social drug. So they were like, well, how are they, you know, how would they use Vilca seeds to build social relationships when it's not particularly sociable? And that's because when you combine the Vilca seeds with the Mole beer, the drug's impact is drastically weakened and also prolonged. So they were essentially drug-laced beers that allowed the wary empire leaders to maintain that kind of heightened status by offering these, these communal experiences that were memorable um but also slightly hallucinatory so i think kind of that's key it was like they offered this intense experience but also in a way that was a bit safer and you could remember and you weren't like where am i um mole beer as well is was much easier and faster to make than what the incas switched to which was maize beer um and we don't know why we don't know why they suddenly switched from having this beer to a harder to make beer when uh, Molly was kind of like quite enjoyed. I won't go any further into the maize beer thing because I will leave that for the Peru, Peru episode, but I thought I'd better throw in a bit that uh, a civilization thought if we take those sort of ayahuasca like experiences, dilute them using beer, actually we can form better relationships with those and rule a peaceful empire. So that's cool. Also, I just <laughs> remembered a drink that. I um I was unable to actually like find much out about because Google didn't respond well to the things I was querying. But you know, there's a shop called Brain Damage. I'm sure you must yes. have had it, yep. even though it is traditionally made with peach peach schnapps, yeah, two parts, one part Irish <laughs> cream, and then a dash of grenadine. Um, you can do other things like there are a million varieties. You know, like monkey brain and zombie brain say and alien brain, brain, brain and all yeah. this sort of stuff the point is if you have a clear spirit and then you put you know like baileys in it it sort of curdles mm -hmm. and looks like a brain and then you put a bit yeah. of grenadine over it which makes it look like a bleeding kind of brain and but... it's disgusting to drink because the mix of textures is and flavors is pretty horrible but anyway yeah that's that's kind of a commonly uh 
consumed, shot, brain damage. But I couldn't find out any origin story for it because anything I researched about like brain damage, cocktail shots, origins, <laughs> it was just like, yes, you will get brain damage from drinking alcohol. And I scrolled pages and pages and I couldn't get to it. So there we go. I'm just going to have to leave that one in the Shall ether. we say it originated in a hen party in Tiger Tiger? <laughs> Sure. That's our origin story. <laughs> if, to be honest, if I had to guess, I would say that someone put together a Halloween menu. Someone somewhere created some Halloween cocktails and thought that looks disgusting. Let's do that because I don't. I can't imagine anyone creating it on a nice summer's day. Do you know what I mean? No, and I can't <laughs> imagine anyone creating it going. It's different, but we'll put it on the menu. Yeah, but yeah. It's Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, we can get away with it. I think it was a special <laughs> Halloween menu that got out of control. I'd like to talk about more drugs. <laughs> okay, sure. More drugs, why not? Um, Cocaine, actually. We haven't really talked about it too much. I mean, obviously, I endorsed its benefits early doors. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, if you stop taking it, you'll be fine. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I, so when I started reading into this, I felt like this is something I feel like I knew, but I hadn't read into all that much. And it was the... The kind of legend story that originally Coca-Cola, the original recipe, contained cocaine. So have mm-hmm. you heard that before? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Hmm. I feel like I had, but I just hadn't really taken paid much attention to it. So, yeah, I delved into that. So um, the original recipe, 1886, um, it apparently had some residual cocaine in it. Um which was drastically reduced to traces by the early 1900s and entirely eliminated by 1930. Um, But it wasn't actually that radical to have cocaine um, in stuff back then anyway. (laughs) Mm. Um, It it was often in, you know, medicinal kind of remedies and whatnot. Um, And Coca-Cola was actually kind of dubbed a, a medicinal drink because it had extract of cocoa leaves and cola nuts, both two had um, medical benefits. Um, but yeah, it was the uh, the cocoa leaves that were causing the issue with cocaine. Uh, so it's not like they were, you know, chucking straight up cocaine in their, in their recipe. Um, it was um, a precursor to cocaine, which is echognine or ecognine. Ecognine, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but yeah, it, it was essentially a very small amount, a precursor to cocaine in a very small amount was in the recipe. It's very hard to determine how much because Coca-Cola are very, very secretive with their recipe. But we know that it wasn't enough to give you a buzz. So you weren't going to be drinking a can of Coke and then acting like you'd just done a, you know, a load of cocaine. Um, but as I mentioned, it wasn't unusual to have cocaine in drinks or medicines back then. Uh, there were quite a few drinks on the market. Uh, Vin Mariani, which was uh, a wine, a coca wine. Um, also, <laughs> a drink called Cola Coca, which I think nobody would get away with in modern days. Yeah. <laughs> Not even Lidl. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Aldi are raging about that one. <laughs> Um, but yeah, cola coca was a distilled liquor in Spain. Um, and yeah, cocaine was made and sold by um, pharmaceutical countries. 
Uh, it was sold as a liquid to drink. It was sold as a powder, cigarettes. You could buy kits to inject it. Um, yeah, it, it was seen as a, medic a medicinal thing. It wasn't seen as a, you know, a party drug like mm -hmm. it is these days. <laughs> um, so, in the turn of the century, uh, when Coca-Cola entered the mass market, um, the medicinal market was unregulated. So, as well as cocaine, people were drink, uh, having morphine, opium, heroin, all sorts of stuff. Um, but there was a negative public attitude forming towards them. Which is why then they thought, okay, let's tone it down a bit. Let's. It would be good if we could say that there are no traces of cocaine or precursor to cocaine in it. Uh, so as I mentioned, by the early uh, 1900s, they managed to get it down by traces. And then it was completely cocaine-free by 1929. Um, but they're dipping their toe back into it. Not cocaine, but cannabis. Ah. Um, so yeah, Coca-Cola, I say in recent years, it was around 2018, the article I found. Mm -hmm. um, they've been talking to a Canadian cannabis, cannabis producer uh, just to look at bringing cannabis-infused drinks to the mass market. Uh, they're not the only ones. I will talk about a few other companies that are doing that. But um, yeah, cannabis-infused infu cannabis beverages. Um, not a new concept. Uh, so for thousands of years, people have been consuming cannabis and cannabis in uh, beverages. Uh, so alongside cocaine, uh, cannabis tinctures were widely available in the US. Um, this was more in the late 1800s again, um, and from pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so they were outlawed uh, by the early 1900s as well. Uh, so it's kind of come full circle now. I don't think we're moving towards legalising cocaine, <laughs> but I think cannabis, and I mean, in the US, a lot of people have already legalised it again. And as a result, we are seeing it starting to appear back on the market, mainly through edibles, or as the marketing teams like to call them, medibles. Um, but it's also starting to show up in drinks. So not just your brownies and other whatnots. There are quite a few companies starting to make sodas, essentially. Uh, they're like spin-offs of Coke and Fanta and Dr Pepper. So you can get ones called Canacola, Orange Kush and Doc Week. Um, you can buy those in 12 ounce bottles or cans for roughly 10 to 12 dollars. Um, you can also find coffee and non-alcoholic beer that contain um, cannabis. Now, when it comes to cannabis-infused drinks, it's worth mentioning that it's going to be THC in the ones that I'm talking about. So with cannabis, there are two main kind of aspects to it that we know about, and that's THC and CBD. CBD we've probably heard a lot more about because it's more widely available here mm -hmm. in the UK because it's not illegal. Um, so CBD is more more like a supplement essentially like people have you know vitamin c or certain supplements cbd is already starting to appear in all kinds of products on the shelves here in the uk and europe as a supplement um whereas thc that's the psychoactive ingredient that essentially gets you high and that's not legal here in the uk 
but it is in certain states in the US for medicinal reasons you can have and, and buy that. So yeah looking at Coca-Cola I think it's likely that we will see CBD products in the UK and Europe from those guys perhaps they will go into THC um, but from what I've seen online there's not a heck of a lot being said about it but it looks like they're moving towards CBD because I think that's more of a mass market and it's easier to like push that out globally mm-hmm. but um, quite interestingly Constellation Brands I'd not heard of them before I thought but they're actually the brands uh, the makers of Corona beers um, they bought a 10% stake in a Canadian uh, cannabis producer in 2017 so there's a lot of drinks producers starting to dip their toe into it but um I think unless THC becomes widely legalised, I can't see the kind of drinks that get you really high being on the market. Mm-hmm. But I think CBD as a supplement and a medicinal benefit will definitely... I'm I'm surprised it's not more widely available already. I think you can get... I see a lot around here. Waters, mineral waters and things like that. Oh, I've seen, I've seen beers, coffees, cakes, all sorts around here. CBD, everything. Yeah. Oh. You fancy London folk. I know. (laughs) Yeah, but CBD oil is, I I think, it's quite common. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, THC, we're not allowed it. But we should be, because that'll be fun. (laughs) (laughs) The campaign starts here on the spreadsheet. (laughs) Um, I, I mean, I haven't spoken about ancient Greece yet, so obviously that's coming. (laughs) <laughs> I was waiting. Yeah, because it's an episode. Um, actually, I'm going to refer to a previous episode, so this will be completely new for you. Um, delirium, as I said, like has this long cultural association with drinking. Uh, you may remember, I'm speaking to the listeners, not you, um, not you, Morgan. In the Dionysus Bacchus <laughs> episodes, um, oh, I, I told you that. about the story of the Bacchae, which resulted in this violent death of Pentheus. And how this was caused by the delirium-inducing powers of the wine god. And in some versions, it wasn't actually Dionysus who did this directly. He sends the mania, or mania, um, to do this for him. Who are underworld spirits of madness. And they are the daughters of Nyx, which means night. Because um, I, I went searching for a specific representation of... Um, a deity of delirium but i think because the word itself is sort of later latin you don't find you you're not going to find the word delirium it will be kind of other forms of of madness and so forth so instead of kind of going further down that route i thought i'd give you a contemporary representation from neil gaiman's comic series the sandman which uh is going to be a tv series soon actually and it's been a comic series for many decades. Uh, so in the Sandman, there are a group of immortals called the Endless. And each of them begin with the letter D, of which Delirium is the youngest sibling. And in this series is also referred to as a daughter of Nyx and known to the Greeks as Mania. So this is very much like if Delirium had existed as a term, who she would be according to the Greeks, potentially. Um, the other siblings in this group include, from oldest to youngest, Destiny, Death, 
the, the titular character, the Sandman, a.k.a. Dream, then Destruction, Desire, and then Delirium. Or as she was formerly known before something unknown happened to her, Delight. So in the comic series, Ooh. we know she used to be called Delight, and we know that something happened to her, but we don't know what it was, and then she ended up being Delirium, which that's I think is really... That's drastic. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's really interesting that... Um, you can sort of, you can imagine, you can fill in your own blanks how someone who is a personification <laughs> of delight ends up kind of in this fractured place. Um, so the character is portrayed, I love the way the character is portrayed. Um, her appearance changes to suit her mood or to reflect who she's with. And that also includes the word bubbles for her speech. So, you know, when you read comics, they have word bubbles and they sort of appear mm-hmm. as a mix of sort of psychedelic colours, but they can they change according to her mood or they can go sort of completely white and normal if she's trying to sort of be focused but it causes her pain to speak like everyone else or to look like everyone else um her shadow as well never reflects her shape um and it's a tangible shadow it feels like velvet and she is there's so many good details she's said to smell of sweat late nights sour wine and old leather so the oh, character, like me, <laughs> like much like you, yeah. Um, <laughs> delirium is scatterbrained and easily distracted. Yeah, um, tick. She often forgets the thread of her conversations and comes out with offbeat and seemingly inconsequential observations. <laughs> I feel very, very attacked right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and then also delirium. This character is is quick to respond angrily to people who are rude to her um she punishes them with forms of madness basically but yeah it's um it's a great series if you haven't read it but it will also be coming to a netflix or something near you soon i presume i think it might be a bit triggering for me <laughs> it might be a bit triggering for you yes indeed <laughs> all of which leads me to kaikion so kaikion means to stir or to mix and was an ancient greek drink of um different descriptions so some were made mainly of water and barley like beer with some added botanicals others were actually made with wine and grated cheese um so kaikion is mentioned in homer in the iliad who describes it as consisting of Pramnian wine barley and grated goat's cheese and it's mentioned in the Odyssey where um, the, the sorceress Circe adds some honey and pours her magic um, potion into it. So they end up drinking that and then, you know, all sorts of terrible changes occur. Um, so the connection really, given that it's, it's sort of, it can be made of different things, is that Kaikion usually refers to a psychoactive compound brew. Um, so the, the point is that whatever it is, you're going to trip. Um, and it's mostly <laughs> referred to in the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were initiations that were held every year for the cult of Demeter and Persephone. So we're back to agriculture. These were cults based on agriculture. And we're probably going back to the Mycenaean period with this, which is the second millennium BCE. So from sort of 1000 BCE back. And the rituals were based around what would be quite well-known stories even now, I think, that Persephone is taken to the underworld and her mother Demeter makes a deal with Hades to have her back for half of the year 
So it's the story that sort of explains the seasons, that when Persephone is back and Demeter is happy, we've got spring and summer, and when she's in the underworld, we've got autumn and winter. So these are very old traditions, and they probably even predate the Dionysiac mysteries that we explored in those episodes. So some highlights from these rituals, uh, which would have taken place around late September, so sort of harvest time. The procession to Eleusis, that's a that's a place, that's a place in Greece, uh, began at Karamakos, which is in Athens. It's a cemetery in Athens uh, on the 18th. And from there, the people walked to Eleusis along the sacred way, swinging branches called, now, I think it's pronounced bak choy, which is not the bak choy you get in Chinese stir fries. They were like, they were just <laughs> sticks, essentially. <laughs> um at a certain spot along the way, they shouted obscenities in commemoration of Iambe. In the stories, Iambe is this old woman who... Um, so Demeter is, like, mourning the loss of her daughter, and she's going in search of her, and she meets Iambe, and Iambe just tells her a load of dirty jokes that cheers her up. <laughs> it's such a weird part of the story. Just like, oh, I met an old woman, she told a load of dirty jokes. Bye. So that's part of the procession <laughs> is that they start shouting obscenities and tell dirty jokes. Um, then it goes on and they start um, shouting um, Iakch or Iakche, which is probably related to Iacus, which, if you remember, is either a completely separate deity or is another version of Dionysus, um, who in this version is also a son of either Persephone or Demeter. We went through the various kind of origins of Dionysus that were inconclusive, but it seems that there is some kind of combination of deities going on in history where they associate um, Demeter and Persephone, who are agricultural gods, with Dionysus, who's obviously like wine and fertility and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, upon reaching Eleusis, there's an all-night vigil, which probably commemorates Demeter's search for Persephone. And then at some point... Uh, they have a special drink, Kaikion, of barley and penny royal is the description. Penny royal is part of the mint family. It's also known as pudding grass. Um, so and then so they have that, and it leads to speculations that there are chemicals that have psychotropic effects within uh, the Kaikion. And the most popular theory is that element is actually ergot. Ergot is a fungus that grows on barley. Um, which contains psychedelic alkaloids that are very similar to LSD. It's not LSD, but it's, it's similar. It's like a precursor to it. Um, now, there there is actually some proof to suggest that this is the case. So there are fragments of ergot in a temple that was dedicated to those two Eleusinian goddesses that was excavated in Spain um, at Girona. And also inside a vase and within the, the dental calculus of the teeth of a 25-year-old man that show that ergot was being consumed and it was being consumed in temples as well. So it does kind of provide quite a lot of legitimacy that um, it was an ingredient in the Kaikion. But, it, you know, it could have been that it was opioids from poppies because Demeter is a goddess of poppies. Or it could have been hallucinogenic mushrooms, or it could have been anything else. But ergot's the most popular one. The effects of ergot can be characterised by muscle spasms, fever, hallucinations, 
and the victims may appear dazed, unable to speak, become manic or have other forms of paralysis or tremors and suffer from hallucinations and other distorted perceptions. So much like any other hallucinogen or, in fact, delirium. Um, it just makes you are... wonder, is it worth it? Like, all <laughs> side effects are so nasty. Like, Jesus. Well, mm-hmm. I think it depends what else you got going on, you know? Have you got mm-hmm. to do anything tomorrow? That's the question. I still, um, I still, it's it's wedge that gets me. I just don't <laughs> want to throw up until I shit myself. <laughs> Great. Well, let's not go back to wedge. Um, a lot of <laughs> a lot of historical moments of delirium have been blamed on ergotism. So things like the Salem witch trials, where people sort of get swept up in like this mass mania or halluc- hallucination. Um, although actual evidence for those things are quite scant, it's just that ergot toxicity tends to fit narratives of terrible behavior really well um the great fear as well in rural france uh, people think that was uh, ergot poisoning that was when peasants just sort of started attacking manor houses uh, and burning them down and that was the precursor to the french revolution uh, it is also known as saint anthony's fire which is named after the order who cared for saint anthony following his fasting induced hallucinations and their monastery, in fact, specialised in treating ergot poisoning. So it was well known that it was a thing. Like people, it's not a recently discovered thing. People knew that ergot poisoning um, has been around for a very, very long time. So they specialised in treating it. And one of the main things you need to do when you're treating ergot is um, uh, concentrate on vas- uh, vasodilation. So make sure the blood vessels are expanding. And one of the key ways they did that was with herbs in wine. So it's kind of funny that one of the main ways to treat that uh, potentially ergot infused beer poisoning was to give them some wine beer and wine makes you fine <laughs> makes you feel fine <laughs> um i wanted to finish with a bit of march madness because that's why we're doing this episode in march um i presume you've heard of the expression mad as a march hair i have uh so th- this comes from this this view that's been held for quite a long time actually that hares just suddenly start behaving strangely um throughout the breeding season which in europe has traditionally been in march although climate change you're going to see it right now um you know february (laughs) january um and that kind of odd behavior is described as jumping vertically for seemingly no reason generally displaying of normal behavior and specifically boxing boxing other hares so there has there's this kind of big misconception, even now, I think, um, amongst some people, that the boxing is male hares fighting each other for breeding rights. But actually, it's the females who box away the males. So when you see <laughs> boxing hares, it's always uh, female and male. And the idea is basically if the female can knock you out, you don't deserve to breed with her, which um, oh, I, I believe that. is pretty common in Wales. Yes, that's how Chris knows. Mm. but the term like mad as a march hare has been used in literature since the 16th century um it's a very kind of old idea that that hares suddenly get mad but most famously used by lewis carroll um in alice in wonderland so like the character's friend the the mad hatter the march hare feels compelled to always behave as though it's tea time and, you know, apparently that's because the Hatter supposedly murdered the time whilst singing to the Queen of Hearts. And so they're stuck in this in this place. 
the illustrations from the original books by John Tenniel, which I went to see very recently because you gave me a ticket because you couldn't go. And it was great. Yes. Um, and <laughs> in those illustrations, you see uh, the March Hare and he's got straw on his head, which was just a very common way to depict madness in Victorian times. For some reason, they just thought straw on your head, that means mad. <laughs> I think it's something to do with looking down on rural folk, I guess. Um, but the portrayal of the March Hare in the Disney version of Alice in Wonderland is sort of even more delirious, I think, than you read him in the book. He's repeatedly offering Alice a cup of tea and then distractedly pulls the cup out of her reach. So he takes it from her hands just as she's about to go and drink. So there is this sort of idea of him, you know, associating his delirium with drinking in some way, even though he's going for tea. But there are there are some quotes that I will share with you uh, to do with drinking in that, just because I love Lewis Carroll. Uh, so have some wine, the March Hare said in an encouraging tone. Alice looked all around the table, but there was nothing on it but tea. I don't see any wine, she remarked. There isn't any, said the March Hare. Then it wasn't very civil of you to offer it, said Alice angrily. It wasn't very civil of you to sit down without being invited, said the March. <laughs> <laughs> and then shortly after that, Take some more tea, the March Hare said to Alice very earnestly. I've had nothing yet, Alice replied in an offended tone, so I can't take more. You mean you can't take less, said the Hatter. It's very easy to take more than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So um, there we go. That was that was me bringing us up to date with uh, St. Louis Carroll, because that is my most contemporary reference. <laughs> well done. <laughs> And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to refill them before we get the heebie-jeebies or the oopazootics. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. I've had that in my head the whole time. Oh, God.